And uh, turn with me now or listen on as I read the epistle, the third epistle of John, the Apostle John. As I say, uh, it's to be read in tandem with Second John. And hear God's word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does, who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all. And from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you, our friends. Greet you. Greet the friends by name. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we look to you again now and ask that as your word has been read, so you might, through the preaching of your word, enable uh, our hearts and our minds and our ears to be open to what it is you have to say to the church in the present hour. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we look now at 3 John, having read and considered 2 John last week. And as I've been saying, uh, these two letters should be taken together. They really resemble one another and they complement one another. Second John tells us uh, its main exhortation in verses 7 through 11 to keep the faithless teachers out of the church. But third, third John tells us to do all we can to support and to help the faithful ones, especially missionaries. So second John, keep the faithless ones out. Third John, be sure that you hold on to and support the faithful ones. And then he rebukes this man for for seeking to cast out of the church faithful ministers. And so together, uh, we have a very balanced and complete picture uh, of the church, which, as I uh, indicated last time, is the real burden of Second John, but also Third John. It isn't Christian hospitality in the home. It is Christian fellowship in the church. That's what we're looking at. Now, again, we need to remember that in the early church, there was, uh, uh, in my mind, something similar to what you had in the first and the second great awakening. And that, and this, certainly this was a great awakening. You had an active itinerant ministry. That is, preachers were going and they were being sent to go around the churches to strengthen them. Uh, and Christians were encouraged to be hospitable to strangers, especially Christians and especially Christian ministers who were passing through their midst. But this idea of uh, Christian hospitality within the church was open to abuse. The question is, who were they to receive? And then, 
On the other hand, who were they to reject, if any? Was there not room for discernment in such things? How often uh, we might note in the early church, but often today, that we Christians are gentle as doves, but we lack the wisdom of serpents. In many ways, we could say that was true of the church that John was addressing. Of course, we know that distortions were possible in both directions. While it was possible to be uh, too undiscerning with respect to the itinerant preachers, allowing any man who came with a word from God into their pulpits, it's what John warns against. In Second John, be sure and be discerning that they preach the one and only gospel, Christ has come in the flesh. So there was also a tendency or an abuse on the other hand to be too restrictive and, uh, and not allowing faithful men to, uh, to preach and to teach. And so John was concerned to, to correct both errors and to define the disposition of the church to both true and false teachers. The way that I would propose to proceed with respect to this letter really is in many ways a character study of four men, which I want uh, us to consider together as the main burden of the, of the sermon. Uh, but before we do that, one of the things that you notice in John, certainly in 1 John, this stands out very prominently, but even as you read these, these lesser epistles, 2nd and 3rd John, uh, there are principles which he, uh, which he alludes to, and which he highlights as basic to Christianity. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't dwell on any thought much uh, in either of these letters. But it's clear that he is simply stating principles which lie at the foundation of the Christian life. And there are four which we will consider before we look at these four examples. The first of which is this. We see again as we saw in Second John. The centrality to John of the truth and love in the Christian life. These two uh, pillars of Christianity, truth and love, not one at the expense of the other, but both standing together and living in harmony in the Christian life. Indeed, uh, I believe John Stott in his commentary says something like uh, the Christian who is able to live by both is a balanced Christian. He he walks by in the truth and he walks by love. And so John is speaking of the centrality of these things. Who is the true Christian? That's the question he's answering. The question he's been answering since. First John, who is the man, in other words, if you if you listen to the way he's speaking here, the man in whom the Apostle John delights and rejoices in. And here is what he is like. John says he's walking in the truth and he's walking in love. A belief in the truth that is thorough and changes us so thoroughly, thoroughly that it absolutely changes the course of our lives. That's what he's referring to. A belief in the truth that causes our hearts, he says, to abound in love. Not only for our brothers, but here we see even for the stranger. Though we see, and we must quickly add, that he is a brother too. He just isn't a member of your local church. Yes, and we see how love, on the other hand, is always in the truth for John. He knows no love except that which is of the truth, which means a love for the truth on the one hand, and then uh, along with that, a love for those who love the truth as well. And what is the truth but that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, as he says in Second John. Yes, John says, my heart abounds with, with love for such as these, those who love and walk in the same truth. And then as a second principle is expressed in verses 5 through 8, we see that a truly Christian spirit is willing to entertain strangers, an emphasis that is found in many places in the New Testament. And this is something which John is entertaining here. He says that 
that the beloved Gaius was faithfully entertaining strangers and that he was known for this. Yes, and this is right, John says, and he who does this does well in the sight of God. But the question which we have is who are these strangers? And again, this helps us to understand the discernment we ought to have as Christians in a local Christian church. The answer which he gives in verse 7 is uh, those whom he was entertaining and loving in the truth were those who go out for the sake of Christ's name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles, verse 7. In other words, Christian missionaries. And where else can they expect support if not from the churches? Not from the world, John says, but from the church. Yes, and we ought to support such men. In doing so, John says, we send them out worthy of God. And so we too become fellow workers with them in the truth. Just as he says, on the other hand, we ought not to support godless men because if we were to do so, we would partake of their evil deeds. Well, so on the other side of things to support a mission or a missionary is to participate with their work in the truth. No, do not look for the world to support such endeavors, John says. But let the church be sure that she looks after her missionaries. And let the, let the church find encouragement that in doing so she is approved of God. And so we might say in some sense that this uh, disposition with respect to strangers, only we find these strangers are really missionaries, uh, provides a principle of Christian giving. What are uh, Christian missions that we ought to support? John says it's those which do not and ought not to receive their support from, from the world. Those which are Christian uh, initiatives indeed. While describing at the same time our disposition to missionaries in general, we should always welcome a missionary uh, into our church and be glad to hear what they have to say and send them on worthy of God. And that's something that we do from time to time. But as a third principle, I want to begin uh, with the second side of the double principle as stated in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. I want to, it's two sentences. I want to focus first on the second sentence as the third principle. And that is, he who does good is of God. This is very similar to what John stresses in 1 John chapter 3. That the good man, uh, the Christian, is obvious by his good deeds, just as the bad man is obvious by his deeds. And what is obvious about him is uh, either that he knows God or he doesn't. How do you know? Well, look at his life. Is he walking in the truth and is he walking in love? Well, John says, here's the true Christian who both knows and sees God in his fellowship with the Father and the Son and with all the saints. Indeed, the man who not only knows God, but let us take it a step further, but who is like God, he who follows and resembles his master. And yet, the reverse is also true, John says. He who does evil has not seen God. He's nothing like him. He doesn't have fellowship with him. He, he walks in deeds of darkness because that is who he is. Is the point so difficult, really, to understand our view of the grace of God is transformative. And we see the fruit of conversion is new life and nothing less than that. And how can a man partake of this, the new life of walking in the light of the fellowship of the Son and the Father? First John 1 verses 1 through 4. And this not be evident for others to see. And so it really ought to be obvious. John says, he who does good is of God. 
but he who does evil has not seen God. That's the third principle. But connected this is what he says just before that is our fourth principle. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And so having stated uh, the difference between the good, between the good and the, the bad man, he is saying that we ought to imitate that which is good, but we ought not to imitate that which is bad. And yet we might also notice And scripture is full of this, and so too is Christian history, or even contemporary Christianity, that both examples are beneficial to the church. The bad man, let's begin with him. He offers the example which ought to be avoided. Look at him, consider his ways and his ruin, and be warned. You think of Psalm 1. Be careful that you do not imitate him in his sin and suffer his same fate. But likewise, the good man who is of God. Here is a man, John says, whom you ought to imitate. Take a man like Paul, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John. Consider their lives. See what motivated them. The inner workings of the Spirit as they lived out the Christian life to the glory of God. And made them not only do well in the sight of God, but finish well. Make such a point, uh, a point of personal study. Learn of these men so that you might imitate them while also avoiding the bad example of the bad men. But especially be sure to learn of Christ. For the whole of the Christian life can be said to be an imitation of Christ. He is indeed preeminently the good man who is of God. And this is how we learn of him. Learning his ways and sharing too his fate. Walking well, being approved of God and finishing the race which is set before us. The more that we study the life of Christ, the more we have a pattern of that to follow. But having said that, uh, these these four principles, which is really just introductory, the real burden of the sermon is to look at all of these men that John is speaking of. He's writing this church again as he was in Second John, and his interest here is not uh, the elect lady and her children, but rather he is addressing this man Gaius, John the Apostle addressing this man Gaius, likely the pastor of this church, and he's offering him encouragement. Uh, this is a somewhat trivial example, but I think of uh, my favorite minister, John Shortman, calling me on the phone. <laughs> Say, how are you doing, brother? That's what John is doing here. How are you doing, brother? He's, he's encouraging him, but he's also warning him. This other minister. He's warning him off the bad behavior by pointing to the lives of others. And even here, uh, as we look at the lives of Uh, The good man and the bad man, the two examples he points to, Diotrephus and Demetrius, we could also include the lives of John and Gaius as well, since they really are the two most prominent figures in the letter. We can consider those men. And in, in this we have a character study, and we are doing, in essence, in this character study, what John is telling us to do in verse 11, and that is, again, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And the way that you are to do that is to consider the life of the good man and the life of the bad man. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Well, let us see that in the life of these four men. And thankfully, there's three good examples and only one bad one. And yet it is amazing how much trouble the one bad man was able to create in the lives of the three good men. We begin with the Apostle John himself. We see uh, more than enough here to imitate 
We see here a man who was good and who was of God. Here is, let us say, and let us see the faithful pastor who looks after the flock and even seeks to strengthen fellow ministers in the work. That is what I believe he's doing here. And let me just say here, beloved, how great is our need for such men, for faithful pastors. And do you realize how rare such a thing is? I've been a minister, I think, 11 years, and yet I have found or I've seen many men fall along the way. Even here recently, as mentioned uh, in the prayer, and hopefully you saw the email. I don't want to get into the details of that now, but what can I say? Another man has fallen. And does he receive the commendation of faithfulness? No, he doesn't. Do you understand how rare and how precious the jewel of faithfulness is in the ministry and in the Christian life? Do not minimize the importance of the standard and of the goal. John, in commending Gaius to faithfulness, was being a faithful pastor himself. He was setting an example of faithfulness. John, likewise, was a minister of love. His heart abounded with love for the truth and those who walked in it. He never met a Christian he didn't love and wanted to serve. Which is just to say, in this epistle, as with the others, we can see his ecclesiology at work, his doctrine of the church. John, as a pastor, was one who loved the churches. And he wanted to strengthen them. Every church with, with which he had contact. Aware as he was at the same time of the many dangers that surrounded the church. Her members, her ministers and so forth. The dangers which confronted her both from within and from without. And so his love, let us see, did not make him naive. It rather made him wise for again it was founded and based upon the truth of God. And look also at his prayer which we have uh, in verse 2, John was a man of prayer. And so is everyone who is of God. We see much to imitate in their prayers. Those of us who, like the disciples, would learn and be taught how to pray. And do you notice what he prays for here? How he prays for the prosperity of his brother. Again, how are you doing, brother? I'm praying for you. Even for his body. That his body might prosper as his soul. No, this is not beneath the concerns of the godly pastor. To pray for the temporal welfare of his people. And even other pastors he knows. And likewise, how he rejoices to see his prayers being answered. No greater joy than this, he says. Than to hear my children walk in the truth. We see that John was an encourager. He knew what a good testimony was and he sought to encourage it when he saw it. Verses 5 through 8. The letter was meant to be an encouragement to Gaius as we've seen. Let the faithful man and the faithful pastor find words of encouragement from the godly. Let his ministry not be devoid of words like this. For his is a difficult work and his opponents and discouragements are many. As certainly we see was in the case of Gaius. Though he was a faithful man. He had opponents even in his own church. The more godly the minister and the ministry. The more difficulties will attend his work. Let his elders step in and encourage him in the work. Let other ministers do the same. Again do you see John's ecclesiology at work. His sense of what true Christian fellowship consists of. 
But at the same time, do you also notice his courage and conviction, his commitment to the truth and opposing all who opposed it? This brings us to verses 9 through 11. The apostle of love was not afraid to oppose those who sought to harm the church whom he loved or even uh, those who opposed himself as an apostle and minister of Christ, thus rejecting his apostolic and ministerial authority. He knew he was called of God and of Christ. He knew his message was the truth. And here was the secret of his courage. It was that he as a minister of God contended not for himself, but for the cause of Christ and and of God. Yes, and this tremendous concern he had for the well-being of the church, especially those under his care as an elder, meant that he would do what was needed to set things in order, even if this meant opposing those who were troubling her. Courage and conviction. Do you see a picture here in John of the faithful pastor in Third John? And a model of Christian living worth imitating. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God. And John was one who was of God. But consider the next example, Gaius, whom John was addressing, this pastor that John was seeking to encourage and to strengthen and also to warn. Do you see how much John has to say about him in the letter? He's the main figure. Beloved Gaius, who was he? The answer is we don't know. In fact, I was surprised to read I may have known this earlier in my life, but it was a surprise to me when I read it this, uh, this week that Gaius is the most common name in his day. So there's simply no telling who he was. But as I say, he was a pastor most likely. He was known for his labors in the church both locally and more broadly. We also know that he was troubled by this man, Diotrephus. But he was one, John says, who walked in the truth and was known for entertaining strangers, that is, Christian missionaries. His heart and his ministry were broad, not confined to the local church, but extending beyond uh, her confines. He was a man, a broad churchman like the Apostle John himself, whose love extended to all who walked in the truth. He was a model Christian and a model minister. He was known for, here's the word again, faithfulness. Listen again, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. And so I'll tell you again that the longer I go on in the ministry, the rarer and the more precious this jewel appears to me that a man and a minister should be called faithful. It was no small thing here at this moment for Gaius, the minister, the pastor, to be called faithful by John. Or for other ministers to be called faithful by Paul. Or especially as you think, the commendation we all wish to receive at the end of the Christian life. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the goal, beloved. That is the prize. It's the precious jewel. It is the great task which is set before us all as we labor for the glory of his name, going out for him like these missionaries, following him in the sinful world, laboring in the church. The goal is to be faithful, evidently faithful. When I see how easily even good men fall, it makes me see that this is the great thing. 
and without Christ there to help and to strengthen and to uphold us in our weakness, none of us would ever be counted faithful. I am sure of that. So you find John saying this of Gaius, and you ought to realize what he's really saying. Here is something worth commendation. Something worth highlighting as a matter of goodness and imitation. Here is the good man who knows God and who is of, who is, who is of God. The faithful man. Gaius was, let us see, a man like John. A true companion of John's. Though perhaps, was he a bit lacking in courage? We can surmise this because he failed to deal with this troublemaker in the church. Diatrephus. He needed encouragement and help from this other minister, John. And so he, like us, was not without his faults. But let me go on now to the bad man, this troublemaker, Diatrephus, spoken of in verses 9 through 11. And let me just read verses 9 and 10. I wrote to the church, but Diatrephus, who loves to to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Here was the troublemaker, the thorn in Gaius' flesh, and indeed the thorn in John's flesh. Who was he? Was he a fellow pastor, perhaps? Was he an elder in the church? Or was he just a prominent member? It seems most likely, though I cannot be sure, that he was an elder. Let us call him a ruling elder, for that seems most likely. And so here Gaius was the minister, but he had this powerhouse of an elder, Diotrephus. Diotrephus didn't listen to Gaius. He was not impressed with his ministry. He would not have called him faithful as John did. Nor did he listen to John. He rejected the apostles and their authority. He was only interested with his own ideas and his own agenda. Gaius may be known for taking in strangers, but not him. He would seek to put such men out of the church, and then beyond that to cast out those who did so. That's why I think he was an elder, because he had some level of authority, something beyond a prominent member, though no doubt as an elder, he was a, he was a prominent member of the church. He had a very large say in this particular church. Perhaps uh, we may surmise that he, he had even sought, as elders sometimes do, to get rid of his pastor, Gaius. How clear John says that he was someone who was not good and did not know God, verse 11. This was obvious in his obvious self-interest, in his opposition to what was good and those who did good. A malicious gossip, but also from the fact that he rejected the faithful ministry of John and of Gaius. He enjoyed the preeminence. That is what drew him to leadership. Not a desire like a faithful John or a faithful Gaius and a love for the church to shepherd and care for the flock. And all those who belong to her in this broad sense of a broad churchmanship but his concern was as narrow as himself his concern was for his own glory his problem as john stott says was not theological we don't read as we do in second john that these teachers were denying that christ had come in the flesh but simply uh it was a moral disposition of sinfulness he was unfit for leadership and how much havoc a bad leader might wreck upon the church And what does John propose to do with this troublemaker, this problem elder? 
Well, he says in essence, as any good leader would, especially in the position of John, I will deal with him myself when I will come. Do you know that some such things are sometimes necessary, even in the church today? You have a problem elder who arises, thank God, not in our church, but this is often the case, and it's simply too much for the pastor to deal with, especially given the prominence of this particular man in the congregation. He has uh, a large measure of support, and it's too much for the man to handle. He's gained too much prominence which was, after all, all he sought. And having found it, he did not easily give it up. So the pastor's at his wit's end. What is John telling us to do? Well, in essence, he's saying, it's time to call in the big guns. You need to look for help outside the church. Put your broad churchmanship to work. Realize that the church is bigger than the local congregation. In our context, it would mean call in the presbytery. Call upon men who are faithful and courageous, as John was who are prepared to deal with troublemakers in the church. And they will handle it. But the point is, going back to that original principle, the third principle, that we ought to know the difference. Look again at verse 11. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. You need to know the difference between the good man and the bad man. And having noticed it, when the bad man should arise then you need to be like John, one who is prepared to deal with him. But finally, and very briefly, we have the example of Demetrius, who's just briefly mentioned in verse 12, but we might say something about him. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Here was, in all likelihood, the bearer of the letter, a man not known to Gaius, but known to John. Oh, but speaking of Diotrephus in verses 9 through 11, the unworthy example which, uh, which he had immediately makes him think of his faithful servant and companion, Demetrius. Here is one, John says, who knew God and whose piety made it absolutely obvious and clear. Soon Gaius would see this. Again, it is evident those who know God and those who do not. But as I uh, sum up what we have uh, read here in Third John, What I want to stress is, again, John's ecclesiology, the way it is he is describing a pilgrim people in a hostile land, the troubles and the difficulties she faces and the ways by which she is strengthened, the way by which the church proceeds through the wilderness, the way it typically goes for us all. What John is describing here is not something that is uh, really unfamiliar in any sense. We know that while there are many worthy men, worthy of imitation, there are many Johns, there are many Gaius, there are many Demetrius, Men worthy of our commendation and imitation. Sadly, we find, as John says, for instance, 2 John verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And what do those men do? They go to the seminary and they seek an audience in the church. They're not content to spread their heresy in the world. They want to spread it in the church. That's what animates them. That's what motivates them. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And again, here in 3 John, John speaks of troublemakers, problem elders, and so forth. And so he says we're troubled from without and from within. The false teacher who seeks an audience. The deceiver who goes to seminary and charms the professors and the presbytery and who ultimately becomes 
a minister. Yet look to his doctrine, John says. What does he teach? And ultimately look to his life. Does he really know God? Is it obvious? Is he a man you would want to imitate? Likewise, he's troubled from within. Problem elders, problem members. Those who seek prominence and preeminence, but only for their own glory. Those who forbid real godliness and stand in the way of those who do. The thorn, again, in the flesh of the godly minister and the godly congregation. Let us see in all of this a picture of what the church was like then and really always has been. Seeing this is what will give life to John's words speaking to the church today. And his words in 2nd and 3rd John are sound guidance for the church in every age. Our concern ought always, primarily, to be to walk in the truth and to imitate and encourage those who do. While at the same time, John says, not having fellowship with those who do not. So that the church is not an open society. It is a closed society. How clearly John stresses that here. He's talking about the keys of the kingdom, which were entrusted to the disciples and to their successors. And so the goal here is to be like these missionaries who came into the church and were strengthened and were sent on in a way worthy of God. They were strengthened both physically and spiritually. Yes, and that is the question. As Christian disciples, followers of Christ, and in that sense, those who go forth for his namesake, like these missionaries, the question is, are we going forth In a way that is worthy of God. Are we walking in such a way that is worthy of the name above all names, Jesus Christ? Is he not worthy of our best efforts and our most sanctified endeavors? Is he not worthy of giving up all so that we might follow him? In a spirit we hope of faithfulness unto the end. And yet do you not see that we like these missionaries can never do so on our own? We depend not on the world, for how can the world ever help or support us? In this, reg- in this regard, the world is really more like an enemy. Where then can true friendship and help be found? The question these missionaries are asking is they were passing through. And the answer is, as they found to their relief, and so we like them, only in the church. Only there will a pilgrim find relief and strengthening and help. A church which is willing to take us in, to entertain strangers, those who are brothers, and faithfully do for the brethren whatever is needed to send them on in a manner which is worthy of God, even opposing those who do not. Yes, indeed, I would say that is a worthy picture of the church. And may it, with God's help, be a picture of ours as well. Amen. And let us stand together and sing to God's praise. It's a hymn of response, hymn number 548.